Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Welcome back. I'm John Fugelsang. Let's talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Perhaps you've heard of her. First in her class from Columbia Law School, a woman who battled sexism from her childhood, who co-founded the Women's Rights Project at ACLU, who argued six cases before the Supreme Court and won five, went on to become the first Jewish woman on the court and to be the first justice to officiate a same-sex marriage. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is more than a Supreme Court legend. She has now been immortalized as the 32nd hero in the New York Times best-selling picture book biography series for kids age 5 to 9, Ordinary People Change the World. As a dad and a fan of history and a fan of good people, I'm a huge fan of this series. And you know Brad Meltzer from this show. He's the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Escape Artist and many other bestselling thrillers, uh, as well as The Ordinary People Change the World series. I'm also a big fan of his grown-up books, like uh, he co-wrote The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington, as well as The Lincoln Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill America's 16th President and Why It Failed. Ordinary People Change the World, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, is a departure for Brad in a few ways, and it's a real pleasure to welcome the man back to SiriusXM, Brad Meltzer. Happy New Year. Thanks for being with us. Oh, good. so good to be back, John. So good to have you, and I'm so thrilled this book is out. I have been dying to get my kid to understand why Ruth Bader Ginsburg is so special. He already knows who she is from all the pop culture, but what I love about this series is that that I've heard you say this on the show before. You wanted to give your kids better heroes to look up to, and for that alone, you're a hero to me. But I'm curious, Brad, what's your criteria as you try to figure out who you want to immortalize in one of these books? You know, the the start is always my kids. That's the inspiration. But the criteria is, you know, this is the 10-year anniversary of doing this. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is our 32nd book in the series. So, of course, I have to look back and say, what do these all have in common? And the criteria I've realized is, one, you have to help people. 
right? Just because you're a, a, a billionaire with a big company, that doesn't make you a hero. You got to think about someone beside yourself. And the other criteria is, and, and this is not one that we pick on, that we look for, but it's one that is true throughout every hero we've done, is they follow their passion. So we did mm-hmm. I Am Amelia Earhart, it was planes. When we did I Am Muhammad Ali, it was boxing. When we did I Am Mr. Rogers, it was kindness. And you know they each have their, their own passion, but they find it and they're doing the thing that they love. But for us, when, it, when it, I think the real answer to your question is, um, how do we pick? We, we, we look at what the universe kind of is looking for at that moment in time. And I know that sounds a little yeah. kooky, but you don't get the heroes you want. You get the heroes you need. And, and I, I don't think it's a coincidence. We just did John Lewis. Um, mm-hmm. We did Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You can tell this is a time where it feels like the system's a bit broken. It feels like the, you know the game has been rigged. And yeah. in those times, I don't think it's a coincidence that we started looking at how do we show our kids better ways to fight in terms of social justice. Uh, and that's just where the world was. I had no idea when I started writing this one a year and a half ago. You know, we have a page on anti-Semitism and the anti-Semitism she saw um, when she was growing up. I have no idea that with everything that's going on in Israel right now or the anti-Semitism that's rampant right now, that that for some people is going to be the most important page in the book. That's right. just dumb luck. But I don't, you know, I, I think for us, I wanted to teach my kids about justice. And that's a hard concept. Of course. But this one's a bit different, I think. You know, you're right about heroes, and it is hard to find a genuine one, especially in a culture that seems, Brad, to have a habit of putting people on pedestals just so we can tear them down again. It's a bipartisan spectator sport. But this particular hero uh, of Justice Ginsburg is a bit of a departure for you. I, I believe, Brad, from what I've heard, this is the first time you've written a book about a person, a hero, a historical figure that you actually knew. Yeah, the amazing part about this, you know, when when I did I Am Billie Jean King, Billie Jean King spent two hours on the phone with us working on it. We had just met her. She was proofing the book. Uh, Dolly Parton and Jane Goodall weighed in on their I Am books. But this is the first one where I knew the hero before we started the book. And her daughter, Jane Ginsburg, was a professor of mine and a mentor of mine when I was in law school. So I went to the source. And back then, because I knew her, I got to meet Justice Ginsburg uh, right after she was elevated to the court. I got to interact with her a number of times. We did a number of events together. In fact, we were both witnesses at a mutual friend's wedding. We were the two witnesses to sign the marriage certificate. And we're in the back room, and our friend's in the white dress, and they, you know, we're in this tiny little room. And Justice Ginsburg leans over and is the first witness and signs the marriage certificate. And I looked at my friend, and I was like, do you really need me at this point? Like, I think she's got it covered. <laughs> <laughs> but but I will say, all, all kidding aside, and it is a true story, the 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 thing that I, I honestly think the reason we waited so long to do Ruth Bader Ginsburg is because I didn't want my bias kind of floating in there. And I was just always worried that if I knew her, is that is that making it why I'm doing it? And it just seemed like the right time for her to come back. I, yeah, I think it's a, I think she's a pretty safe bet for one of these books in the series. But what was it like working with Jane Ginsburg? I mean, you know, at, right after her mom dies and she comes in to help you get the the character of her mom, the, the, the narrative better. I mean, you certainly work well with collaborators. But what was that experience like? You know, it was so funny because um, I know her for 25 years. She was my professor in law school and she's the premier copyright 
expert on the planet. So when I was in law school, I'd raise my hand in class and be like, if you theoretically wrote a book and you wanted to copyright, she's like, you can't copyright your book that way, Brad. Like she knew, she knew my shtick. Like she knew me. Um, the fun part of this one is it's her mother's legacy. And and I knew her mom and it, it's recent. It's not like with Jackie Robinson. Where, you know, we work with Sharon Robinson on that book. She was the one who proved that Jackie Robinson's daughter helped us with that one. Um, but that was so many years ago. Ruth Bader Ginsburg had just passed away. Yeah. And it was what was fascinating. Of course, she's forever a legal professor. So at one point in the book, there's a scene where one of the judges says, um, you know, Ruth, this is a wonderful um, this is a wonderful memo. And she was like, Brad, come on. Have you learned nothing since I taught you? We don't call them mem- memos. We call them briefs. And I was just, you know, or it was briefs instead of memos. I called it a brief and it was really a memo. And, and, and again, it just shows you I still don't even know the difference between the two. But she was forever my, she's forever my law school teacher. So, um, and listen, it's still your mom. And, and the fun part for us has been Ruth Bader Ginsburg's granddaughter, Clara, um, has kind of come on the book tour with us and joined some stops with us. And she, the, the greatest thrill I got, John, is she read the book and said, I didn't know this story about my grandmother, which she called Bubby. Like, and there's a, it's my favorite story in the book. There's a moment, you know, we think of Ruth Bader Ginsburg as this very serious, austere Supreme Court justice. But when she's a kid, she wants to go on adventures. She knows she wants to run around and climb trees and go to the roof. And, and it's at a time when girls aren't supposed to do that. You know, they tell you, yeah. you can't do that. You're a girl. And it's her mother who breaks that stereotype. Her mom takes her to the library every Friday afternoon and says to her, you can take out five books, Ruth. Pick any five you want. And among her favorites are books about real people, Amelia Earhart, Harriet Tubman. And in those books, she gets one of life's great lessons, which is, of course, there's absolutely nothing that a girl can't do. And I love the fact that some of the stories that are in the book Ginsburg's granddaughter is like, I didn't know that story about my bubby. Like this is, and and that's been fun for us to kind of, mm. I know it's fun to bring it to strangers, but to bring it to her own granddaughter is just a magical experience. Well, and I also really appreciated how much Justice Ginsburg as a child learned about service from her mother. It seems it was almost a, a, a real spiritual ministry of Justice Ginsburg's mom to instill uh, a, a, respect and a desire to be of service, especially to the less fortunate. Well, that's the, that's the story that she actually, when she says what, this is the one I didn't know. There's a, there's a story in the book where when Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a little girl, instead of having a birthday party, her mother used to take her to the local orphanage, the Jewish orphanage, and would tell her, um, we're going to give away ice cream to all the orphans. And her mother teaches her that's how you change the world, right? You you make change. That's not a lesson Ruth Bader Ginsburg gets from uh, law school or gets from the Supreme Court. It's a lesson she gets from her mother, one of the best sources for all of us always, right? Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that she teaches her how to make change, and that's all our books are trying to do with kids is we're trying to teach our own kids how to make change, how to put some good into the world. That's what this book series is all about. I like how you always say you want kids to see themselves in the historical figures you write about. And to that end, one of the features of your books is that kids get to see these great historical figures as kids, and they kind of stay kids 
throughout the book. So this this can be, you know, uh, getting used to when it's Gandhi or something. But I got to say, this time it really worked for me. Ruth Bader Ginsburg staying child sized really worked for her whole career. Yeah. I mean, listen, these are these are books designed for like, you know, four or five year olds to 12 year olds. And if I teach them about an old Supreme Court justice, they're going to not be listening very long. They're going to be exactly. like, that's an old person. I don't care about them. So when we when we did the series, Chris Eliopoulos, our incredible artist, is, um, you know, he has an art style that's like Charlie Brown meets Calvin and Hobbes. And he draws them when they're really little. He draws them as little kids throughout this. So Abraham Lincoln, yeah. even when he's president, looks like he's six years old and has a little beard and a top hat. Yeah, and, it takes him getting used to, well, but it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Right. And and the goal was funny. Our editor in the very first book said, oh, no one, it's, you know, it's historically like you got to You got to age them up. And I said, Chris, draw, draw Amelia Earhart when she gets older. We told the story when she's little. Now draw as an adult. And everyone who looked at that page, we all realized it was boring. It suddenly got boring. But when when they're little kids, then kids see themselves. And it's not just stories of famous people. This is what we're all capable of in our very best days. And that's, yeah. you know, for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that's what we want you to feel. Well, and this is a story about a girl who faces anti-Semitism, not just sexism. And I got to tell you, Brad, one of my favorite things about your books with my child has been seeing how you address bigotry in a children's book for kids. I'm thinking uh, your Jackie Robinson book, which I just used for two years straight to teach my son what racism was and what good white people need to do, uh, but also your book on Gandhi as well. And, and this is no exception. There's one uh, page where they're going to the Red Swan Hotel no room for Jews. I'm curious, how do you go about addressing something like religious or ethnic bigotry in a kid's book? Is it a is it come easy for you, Brad, or did that take some finessing to learn how to make that palatable so it wouldn't be disturbing to young minds, but actually instill in them a sense of wanting to do right? You know, we with the first one we had to do it on, we did I am Harriet Tubman. And I remember they were like, Are you really gonna show slavery? And I'm like, if we're not showing slavery, what are we doing? Like, that's the point is like American history is not perfect. It's not pretty. It's complicated and it's hard. And, you know, as long as we do it with a sensitivity to that age range, then we can do it well. And um, the one that we really got the most help with is I said to the publisher a few years ago, I said, I want to do Anne Frank. Yeah. And my publisher, I thought was going to laugh me out of the office saying, you're going to do a kid's book about the Holocaust. You're going to show the Holocaust? I'm like, I'm not going to obviously show, you know, six million dead people. Uh, but we started working with the Holocaust Museum. We worked with the people and, and the you know, they, they suggested people to us here who are really good at how to talk to kids about the Holocaust. And, you know, I don't just make that up. I work with these experts who understand how to talk to kids about hard issues. And then we do our best. And, and you know, I am so proud when I remember when I Am Am Frank came out, my sister was the first person who called me. And she got a copy the day it came out. And she, my niece at that point, I think was like five or six years old. And she says, I was so worried about reading the book with her that she'd be scarred. But we had a, an hour long conversation about the Holocaust that was age appropriate and That's inquisitive. It. And she was, and, 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 I, and I said, why are you acting so surprised? It worked. I'm your brother. And, but, you know, and that was the joke, but, but it, I was happy it did. And, and, and I love the fact that parents, like you just said, have used our Rosa Parks book or our Jackie Robinson book or our Anne Frank book to talk to their kids about these hardest of issues. You know, it also occurs to me how challenging it must be to try to write in the voice 
of an iconic real-life figure and express their values in their voice in a way that kids can follow. I mean, you've got a great RBG quote, fight for the things you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. Is that what you look for? Is that the nugget, Brad, to find uh, uh, an inspiring quote from these figures that a kid can latch onto, and then you can let a story unfold around that? Yeah, you know, the the hardest part is trying to channel that voice. And some of them are, you know, we obviously, we can't make everyone sound exactly like they are, but we really do try. And I can tell you that in 32 books now, the hardest ones to write are the Ruth Bader Ginsburg's. Dr. King was the absolute hardest. I was writing it in what I thought was the quote unquote regular normal voice for kids, but it didn't sound like him. He speaks with a grace and an eloquence that's just beyond my silly vocabulary. And and I finally, I, I had to actually study his voice for weeks to figure out he basically doesn't speak in contractions. He doesn't say, you know, we're really? going to do this or we're going to do that. Like he just, and you'll, you can find them, but, but when you hear him speak, his eloquence is, you know, we will go to the, you know, like I can't even describe, but once I started pulling out some of the contractions, not all of them, but some of them, I started finding, okay, now it's getting more like him. And and you can tell that, you know, how do I write like Dr. King? I'm out of my league here. So we went to <laughs> Congress, we went to Congressman John Lewis, who was a, he liked our books. He really liked our book on I Am Rosa Parks. And I went to Congressman Lewis and I said, hey, can you be our advisor on this book? You were there. Help us get this right. And so every time we do one of these books, we do try to find the expert to help us find that voice, find that story, find that level of expertise, especially when we're dealing with hard issues. But no, that, that's almost a, that's the art form in itself is as much as trying to find the good story. As a dad trying to raise a history nerd, I, I completely agree. You know, I'm curious, though, Brad, um, Michael Moore was over here and he said that the, the two subjects people always tell him they want him to make a movie about are Israel-Palestine and the American public school system. He goes everywhere he goes. That's the two films people tell him they want him to make. And I got to wondering, you know, your series has given kids the stories of so many groundbreaking people. But you must hear this all the time, too. Who are some of the figures that you keep hearing people saying they want to see one of these books written about? I mean, Taylor Swift, I would guess. But I'm curious, who are some of the perennials you keep hearing over and over again? Yeah, we have been getting Taylor Swift lately. It's funny. Um, you know, the truth is when we started the series, it was pretty easy to pick. If, you know, if I said to you, pick, give me the top people that are, you think are real heroes for kids. There's no politics about it. Everyone picks basically the same people. Amelia Earhart, Abraham Lincoln, Rosa Parks, Dr. King, Jackie Robinson, Albert Einstein. You know, those are, you're going to get a bunch of those. But when you're 32 books in, you got to make some choices. And we started listening to kids. The number one re request we were getting was, how come there's no Hispanic heroes? Yeah. So we did I Am Frida Kahlo. We did I Am Sonia Sotomayor. Mm -hmm. And then we started getting kid letters from all these kids who were Asian saying, Japanese and Chinese kids saying, where's a, where's a hero who looks like me? I saw you did Hispanic. You did white. You did black. You did Native American. You did Indian. Where's one like me? And we did I Am Pei. A friend of mine That's said right. to me who was Asian said, please you know, uh, here's who we'd love to see. I said, you tell me, who do you think is the best? Who who do you think is the best to represent? And the number one, it's interesting you asked that question, the number one hero we've gotten recently, beside Taylor Swift, of course, but was I Am Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was the mm. number one for a couple of years now. And that's when we were like, okay, it's time. You know, and, and I do think the universe just kind of tells you when it's time. It's pretty amazing to watch. And over and over, you know, you, you kind of got to follow the universe and see what it is when there was a point where dr king seemed like the perfect hero to deal with the problems we were facing and 
And then in the past few years, we were like, you know what? It, it we I feel like it needs almost a different stance. And that's when we did I Am John Lewis, teaching kids how to get into good trouble and, and take a stand. And that was just the right hero for the, these past few years. Ever think about cultural heroes? You ever thought about doing books about the Beatles or, or Bob Dylan or even Bruce Lee? Uh, I will tell you that one of those is happening. I can't tell you which oh, one. Oh, I'll tell you privately. Privately, I'll okay. tell you, but I can't tell. I can't announce it yet. But I, but one I, of those is absolutely happening. Oh wow! I feel like I'm tossing out suggestions. I love it, uh, Brad. I'm curious. What what what's the best feedback you ever got from a, a young person? I know you have parents like me praising you all day long, but I know it means more when it comes from a kid. It always means more because kids won't lie. I mean, I I was at a book signing once. And this little kid was sitting there, really loved the I Am books, and you know was and his little brother was right next to him, and he was holding the table. His nose barely got over the table as I'm signing his brother's book. And I said to the boys, "I said, you have a good time." And the first kid says, "Yeah," because he's so excited. He loves the kids' books. And I said to the younger brother, "You have a good time." He's like, "No, this was boring." Like kids mm. will not lie to you; they That's will true. tell you exactly how they feel, right? So my book signing was boring to this younger kid, but the best one I ever got is a letter I got. We did a, we did one, a, a story about the Wright brothers and the story for the Wright brothers said that every time the Wright brothers went out to fly their plane, they would bring enough extra materials for multiple crashes, which means every time they went out, they knew they would fail and they would crash and rebuild and crash and rebuild. And that's why they took off. And I love that story. Yeah. I want my daughter to hear that story. I want my sons to hear that story. And some guy wrote to me and said, I was teaching my son after we heard your story. I was teaching my son to ride his bike and I let him go and he was riding for the first time and he and trying to ride and he and he completely wiped out. And I thought he was going to just, you know, fall into tears and and this was going to be over for the day and he gets up and he looks at me still on the ground and he's and he, trying to pick his bike up and he says, "Dad, crash and rebuild and crash and rebuild." And like with the words and I was like, "Oh my, I mean of all the things I can think, that's, you know, I can't ever predict that the story that we're going to tell is going to have an impact actually on a real child. And so, you know, and then there are the letters that are my real favorites. Like I got one recently that said, you know, I am, I think it was Lena. She's like, I love unicorns and I like your books. And I'm like, <laughs> I like unicorns too, man. Like, I, I, I mean, who doesn't? So those are, you know, kids write for sure. And the only, the only letters I keep on my desk is a stack of letters from kids. That's, it's got to be, you know, a foot and a half high now. That's great. You have no idea. I caught my kid reading your Gandhi book all on his own, and it made me so happy. Brad Meltzer is the author. The newest book in the Ordinary People Change the World series is I Am Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It makes a terrific gift for the young person or the cool adult in your life. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait to see what the next book is, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you for supporting us in every genre we do. It means more than you know. Oh, always. I love your work. And we'll be right back. This is Progress. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey all, Glenn Kirshner here. So friends, I hope you'll join me on my audio podcast, Justice Matters. Do you care about ethics in government, criminal justice reform, a conflict-free federal judiciary? I thought so. On Justice Matters, we take on issues involving the need to reform our government and its institutions. And we talk about real, achievable reform. I hope you'll join us. Look for Justice Matters wherever you usually get your podcasts. Welcome back. Let me quote our next guest. In modern Western culture, we tend to believe that our conscious mind is in the driving seat. In reality, however, it's our unconscious mind that runs the show. It determines how we react to things, why we're anxious, why we procrastinate, why we prefer men who treat us badly, why girls coming on too strong freaks us out, why we're driven at work, why we can't sleep, why we're a supportive friend, why we stuff ourselves with food even though we're full, why we think everyone hates us, why we think, feel, and do anything. Now, everyone is affected, of course, by their childhood, and the only way to understand why you are the way you are is awareness of yourself, which can be very scary until you realize therapy can be something you do to get rid of the scary. And I'm so pleased to be joined by London-based psychologist Dr. Annie Zimmerman, who you may have heard of. She goes by Your Pocket Therapist on Instagram, where she has over a quarter million followers. She's huge on TikTok and does the most beautiful, lovely videos, which are mostly voiceover featuring her and her dogs from her London home. But she works with clients from a psychodynamic approach. She has a PhD in psychology, and she has completed her studies at the Guild of Psychotherapists. And in her new book... Your Pocket Therapist. Dr. Zimmerman helps people go deep into their past to identify the patterns we keep repeating that aren't helping us out and teaches us how to unlock the present. I love this book. It's a it's more than a book. It's a toolkit for people who want to stop and break free from past patterns and embrace the life you think you deserve. It's a real pleasure to welcome Dr. Annie Zimmerman to SiriusXM. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. I love your book. It's a perfect book for anyone out there who might be afraid to take the leap and actually talk with a therapist. And I love how you really managed to, to compress the most nuanced and complex information into really practical, easy, digestible tips. I'm very envious of you as a writer. But my brother is a therapist, and, and I have to begin by asking, is it, is it true, doctor, that every woman in your family is a therapist? Yeah, pretty much. I'm glad you understand the uh, the trials and tribulations of having families, family members who are therapists, because my mom is a therapist, uh, all my aunties, my sister, <laughs> my grandmother was one of the first people to study psychology in the UK. It's like in my blood. So um, I'm sure you understand how I, I, lovely I, I, that I, could no. be. <laughs> D- doctor, I thought I did until I heard your story. But no, I my brother, I just call him out if he uses clinical terminology on me too loosely. You, I, I mean, you you have, you have to talk about mother issues with your mother. Your thing is 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 dramatic, but it certainly <laughs> seems to be in the genes because you've built up a huge following with this. And and what I love is that you are someone who breaks down barriers of fear 
towards talking about our pain. Um, let me begin with the dumbest question I can come up with. Why, doctor, do people need, what, what do people need to understand about talk therapy? People need to understand, I, th I think people need to understand that it is scary, that your fears are very valid, that it, it's probably one of the most vulnerable things that you can do, but that's not a reason not to do it. The reason why it's scary and it can be challenging is because you're working through something very difficult and in working that through, that's how you find freedom and you can shift and have you know new choices in your life and go in new pathways that you were previously blocking yourself from. So I think um, there's a misconception that uh, talk therapy is uh, like, you know, makes you worse. And by talking about things, right. you're actually just raising up things that otherwise weren't impacting you, but they were impacting you. It's just in talking about them and becoming aware of how they're impacting you. That's how you free yourself from them. Yes. I mean, is it fair to say, doctor, in some cases that just understanding how our past keeps showing up in our present, that sometimes just understanding it isn't enough? I mean, some of us crack the code, we figure it out, but then we wallow in the knowledge of our trauma and sorrow without actually trying to take positive action to stop the patterns. Yeah. So I talk about this in the book. It's like um, if if it was as simple as just understanding then you would have one session and a therapist would say, oh, this is because of your mother or your father and you would leave and then suddenly exactly. it wouldn't affect you anymore. But just knowing is not enough. You then have to, well, first of all, you have to connect to the feeling of it, which can take years because we're, we're terrified of that vulnerability and of the pain. Uh, and secondly, you have to transmute it into action. So it's, it's all well and good to have self-awareness and to start to understand your patterns and where things come from. But then you have to do something differently. And I think that's the hardest point for people because people, they say they want to change, but unconsciously they're terrified of change. And then they throw everything to the kitchen sink um, to, to having reasons not to change because deep down yeah. they're afraid. And it, it requires like real challenge and bravery to do something differently. It's maybe the greatest irony of mental health that misery can be a comfort zone for years. Right. Yeah. But you, you begin the book with your own pain. You, you begin with the path of discovery when you ask for help that led to you deciding to become a therapist yourself. Why was it important to open this book like this? For many reasons. I think there's this kind of guruism of therapists that they are completely, you know, this perfect human who never does anything wrong. And, um, but to understand what it's like to be in therapy, you have to have gone through it yourself. And I yes. really wanted to demonstrate that I, my life was changed by therapy and that's why I'm so passionate about it. And that's why I want to share everything that I've learned and help people find those tools and those breakthroughs. Um, because I was impacted by it and I understand you know, what it's like to be on the other side of the chair and, and how scary it can be, but also how life-changing it can be. Yeah. I mean, you, you write in the book, food was a coping mechanism I'd learned to make me feel better. It numbed me from deeper emotions that I wasn't even aware of. Food, in a counterintuitive way, was a solution. For others, the solution might be different things. Relationships, substances, work, self-criticism, anxiety, depression. And it, it really is true. But in the case of food, uh, speaking as an American, it really seems like that's the code here. We have mistaken brief transitory pleasure 
for happiness. So we'll, mm-hmm. we'll mistake dopamine for serotonin any day of the week and think that something that makes us happy for a moment is actually making us really happy when in reality, it was just a, a fleeting moment of pleasure. And it seems like that's a bit of an epidemic with humans these days. Absolutely. And the problem is, is it works in the moment we're soothed, but it doesn't take away the real pain and it doesn't take away, um, you know, it doesn't work because we have to keep coming back to it. So obviously if we're using food to keep something down, we have to keep using food and that's where the kind of addictive behavior starts. But it's so alluring because it's pleasurable. Um, So of course we want to do it. And I think most, you know, even scrolling, I think is the new addiction and there's something quite comforting about dissociating and just being there and that's why so many people are afflicted by it um, Amen. but it's as you said, not real pleasure like real pleasure is connection and being in present and you know laughing and dancing and connecting to the world um and I, I i don't even think we're getting real pleasure when we binge eat like you're not sitting there and thinking oh this is delicious and really tasting it and connecting to it you're just shoveling it all in so you barely kind of touches the sides and that's really sad because we're actually not it's actually not that pleasurable well your book is divided brilliantly into two categories and one is relationship with the self and one is relationships with other people romantic and, and what have you and boy i would imagine those two topics take up a lot of your office hours but I got to say, you mentioned social media. You're a social media superstar, but you have been so on point in warning people about the dangers of being online all the time. And of course, we hear nonstop reading these articles almost every day about the crisis of loneliness among adults, particularly among men. And I'm curious, what do you make of this crisis? And and what do you make, doctor, of all the media attention that's being paid to the loneliness crisis? Mm -hmm. It's so hard. I think it's 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 so obvious that social media is not making us happy, but there's also a lot to be gained. I mean, there's a lot of connection that takes place in groups that form and inspiration and, um, you know, creativity online. I think it's very easy to say this is bad for us, but then, you know, millions of people are engaging so that it's clearly doing something. Um, So I think if there's a way to find connection online and, you know, it's it, the advice is obvious, switch off your phone, go talk to someone, um, go connect with a real human. And but, but that's not happening. So how can we use social media to our advantage and help people to connect and find support? Um, I think one of the problems is it can be quite a negative space. Um, but for many people, they found friends and they found, you know, they, they might tell people things they've never said out loud and type it out. So I think it's it's a really nuanced issue because most of our lives are operating online these days. So we have to find space for community and, and loneliness. However, exactly. you know, some of the posts that I make on loneliness are the ones that do the best. And I think, I think that really speaks to people. I think we are in an epidemic of loneliness. And part of that is like the lack of authenticity. I think we're all struggling with because the, the more I talk about this in the book, it's like the the, the idea of the false self and the true self, yes. uh, which was proposed by the psychoanalyst Winnicott, who's one of my favorites. And he, he's that so many of us are just living in our false self without even realizing, you know, we people please, we laugh at a joke that's not funny. We, you know, you know, try to impress someone with our knowledge. You know, all of that is it's not authenticity and it can leave you feeling really disconnected to the people around you. Um, and I think the best way to fight that loneliness is to be vulnerable to be messy to you know share your not so nice thoughts or your difficulties and and be real and then when you're connecting with people on 
for your real self, that doesn't feel lonely anymore because you're being seen. Exactly. And of course, as you point out, because you have a, a great section on tips for loneliness, help someone. I mean, by giving to others and experiencing their gratitude, we feel more connected to them and more connected to the person we want to be. Yeah, exactly. I think um, we live in quite an individualistic society, right? And that can leave you feeling really lonely. But actually, it feels really good to help someone or to support someone else and to, you know, not to, not to the extent that you're overgiving. And, you know, if you have an yes. empty cup, then you need, you need to pull back a bit. But um, to engage with people around you actually feels really good. Yeah. You know, I was very struck by something in the first half of your, your book um, where you, you talk about trauma and how it's defined as anything that that shatters our sense of security in our internal and external worlds. But you do something very valuable here. You You list some experiences that aren't considered trauma, but that still affect a child, like the birth of a younger sibling and losing your parents' attention or your mother working a lot or a father who doesn't talk about his feelings or just being uh, bullied by peers in school. Why was it important to you to include these criteria, things that aren't considered trauma, but that can still affect the negative self-image and patterns that children carry with them into adulthood? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think the word trauma can really put people off therapy. They think, oh, well, my parents love me and therefore nothing bad's happened and therefore therapy is not for me. But actually all of our childhoods affected us, even if they were perfect, you know, they still shaped yeah. who you are. And I think that taking away thinking about trauma as having to be abuse or something really terrible and actually just small moments can really impact you. Your mom going back to work when you're really young and dependent on her. Yeah, sibling being born, uh, moving house a lot. We might not consider that trauma, but they would have had an effect on us. And a lot is to be gained from looking back at how that impacted you and how that's holding you back and showing up now. Mm. I want to ask you a question. Um, I've always believed that depression is a disease but negativity is a habit. Is that fair to say that, that too often we confuse depression with negativity or do those habits overlap and feed both conditions? I don't, I don't know if it, I don't know if depression is negativity. I think depression is like a oh, lack I don't, of... I, no, I think it's separate. I, I do think it's separate, yes. Oh, sorry, I misunderstood. Oh, I'm sorry, I've said, I thought, well, for me, I've noticed that sometimes that depression is a disease, but negativity can just be a habit. We might not have right. clinical depression, but we still can repeat patterns that can have their origin in childhood yeah i think negativity is a habit that protects i think that's the origin of it like if you are constantly thinking oh the worst is going to happen and catastrophizing and focusing on the negative it almost protects you from disappointment and from hope and getting overly excited about something so i think it, it is a habit but it's coming from a self-protection and challenging yourself to dare to dream and be excited and be optimistic is actually quite vulnerable and quite scary for people. But it also, as you said, it also can become habitual and something that we don't even question and challenge and think about. But I think that, yeah, again, understanding where that's come from, were your parents really critical or were they really negative? It's always got a root somewhere. You would have yeah. learned to be that way. Children aren't born naturally being negative, I don't think. So even though we think, oh, that's just my personality, it's just who I am, there's always room for shifting and changing it. I mean, you talk in the book about how it's better to get into therapy the earlier that you can, but but does that keep a lot of people from ever asking for help because their parents did love them? Because 
Their home lives may have seemingly been tranquil and there's nothing they can actually point to. I, I was someone who never went to Al-Anon for years because my parents didn't drink and it wasn't until I learned that I still qualify that I showed up at a meeting. Do people keep themselves out because they, they don't feel they qualify? Yeah, I think there's a lot of like, there's a lot of people who are actually quite terrified of saying anything critical because their parents were really loving and they got a lot, but it's okay to to notice something negative and notice something that wasn't so helpful for you and still understand that your parents were doing the best they can and it doesn't make you ungrateful. I think that's something people really struggle with in therapy is they feel a lot of shame and guilt about saying anything bad and it's it's unhelpful because they're they're really just it's quite a defensive position to only see the positive as well because it's not nothing's ever only positive there's always shades of gray and I think being able to tolerate you know both that they love me and sometimes they hurt me is more of like an adult kind of emotionally mature position to get to can i ask about the relationship portion of the book i love your videos uh on tiktok and um it seems that you have a lot of clients who who want to talk about romantic relationships and you go deep into why they can be so challenging but i i want to ask you about one of your sections um why is fear sexy dr zimmerman <laughs> i i was up reading this all night and it's quite fascinating I, I understand how fear could trigger sexual arousal in the body, but how does it work? So, yeah, so by fear, I mean those relationships that produce a lot of anxiety in us. So not when we're actually scared of the person. I think right. that's less sexy and that's just true fear. But it's like right. that anxiety of, are they going to text me back? Do they really like me? How do they feel, you know, when someone's hot and cold and not giving commitment or not saying how they feel? we can mistake that anxiety for attraction and for chemistry. Um, and I think that happens because um, I talk about this idea of a slot machine, um, which gives yes. reward by being intermittent and random. So we can't predict the pattern that we're going to win on the slot machine. And that keeps people playing for longer because they every time they might win and they don't know if it's going to be this time. So they lose, 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 win. And they get a big rush of dopamine and serotonin and it feels really exciting that's and that it. keeps them going to next time. So it's it's arousing, it's exciting. Um, and that's the same when someone gives inconsistent attention, when they blow hot and cold, when sometimes they're really into us and it feels amazing, that's like the win. And then they go cold or they don't reply for a while or they shut off. And then we're waiting again for this unpredictable reward to come back. So it kind of plays on our dopamine reward system and it feels like attraction. It feels like we really want them. But actually, it's just our dopamine, which is like the drive system. So we're driven That's to it. getting the reward. As you write in the book, it sets you off on a roller coaster of highs and lows. This happens when that person is similar to the people who hurt us when we were little. The chemistry and excitement we feel may actually be fear and terror. We're going to get hurt again in the same way. And it seems like, as you say, we keep on trying to fix these old traumas, trying to relive them again and experience a different outcome. And this time, the outcome will leave me happy. Yeah, it's the ultimate fantasy to finally be able to change this person. And that might prove, you know, in your mind, okay, well, maybe now I'm finally good enough that I fix this person and they they are finally showing me love and that means I'm lovable. But really we're trying to kind of fix the things that happened to us in childhood, which isn't actually processing them. It's just repeating them, hoping this time it will be different. So it's it's recognizing that and really grieving for what we didn't get in childhood that is the way to stop ourselves from repeating because we're accepting, actually, I can't go back. What happened happened. It wasn't my fault. And that's really painful. But I want something different for my life. 
There really is no way to heal, Doctor, if you're not self-aware. There's only ways to distract ourselves. Yeah, yeah. People always ask me, how do I heal this? How do I heal this? And my answer is always self-awareness. And not just on an intellectual level as well, like aware of who you are and how you feel in your body and your vulnerability and your inner child, not just kind of this intellectual understanding, but real like depth of understanding of yourself. Is curiosity essential to being able to break free from old patterns? Yes. So I talk about this lots in the book. You would have noticed get curious is a motto of mine. Because of, curiosity, in my mind, is the opposite of shame and judgment. So if you react in a certain way or you um, binge or you get really anxious in a relationship, whatever the thing is, and then you just shut it down with what, like, I'm a terrible person. I'm an idiot. I, I'm no good. You're not understanding yourself. You're just criticizing yourself. If you approach with curiosity and compassion and just open-minded, like what happened there? Why did I do that? Why did I react like that? What was going on? And a more just open curiosity, then that's how you understand what's happening for you and how you then can change it. So I think it's really about putting the shame aside and the judgment aside and just being open to the different parts of you, the shadow parts, the vulnerable parts, all of, all of it. Dr. Annie Zimmerman is the author. The new book is Your Pocket Therapist. Doctor, what is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with all your work? So I'm on Instagram and TikTok at your underscore pocket underscore therapist. Um, and you can buy my book in bookshops across the US. It just came out yesterday um, and it's out in the UK tomorrow, um, plus anywhere online that you get your books. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us from across the pond. I love your book. I love your TikTok and I love what you're doing. Thank you. We'll be right back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is SiriusXM Progress. I want to get to my guests because I've been waiting all week to welcome Simon Moya-Smith and Julie Franchella back to our show. Simon, of course, is an Oglala Lakota and Chicano journalist. He's a contributing writer at NBC News and TheNation.com. He is the author of the forthcoming book, Your Spirit Animal is a Jackass, and the adjunct professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Colorado in Denver. Simon, it's great to have you back. Thank you. Yeah, I love being here. 
I love having you, man. Julie Franchella is an activist, an artist, a writer, and a veteran mental health professional with over 28 years of experience working with complex trauma in the clinical field. She served mm-hmm. as the executive director of a domestic violence center, spent 13 years as a clinical caseworker at a residential treatment center for indigenous youth. She is a member of the Ojibwe of Batuana First Nations Reserved and deeply committed to indigenous issues. She currently works at the First Nations University of Canada and is a professor at Durham College, where she teaches about the profound impacts of colonization on First Nations people. Julie, welcome back. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. And I just want to say, as the wolf moon rises in our Native American culture, the full moon is named for the howling wolves of winter, and it symbolizes a deep deep introspection and communal strength. Thank you. And yes, this is the first full moon of 2024. I didn't realize that was the significance of of, of the wolf moon. The wolf moon, yeah. Yeah, so it symbolizes introspection and sort of a a deep communal strength. And uh, it, it's, uh, it guides us on our path and connects us with the wisdom of our ancestors. So thank you for mentioning that. I heard you mention that. I think it'd be great if someone introduced introspection to uh to to North America. It'd be wonderful. Um, I'm I'm so glad you guys are with us. It's been a crazy week, and I want to talk about a lot of stories in the news and play some some did you know? But I want to begin with this inspiring story because we we like to talk uh, in this country about patriotism, about e pluribus unum, about looking out for each other, Christian values. But I love this yeah. story that has just come out of Maine. And Maine uh, has a, a lot of problems with the opioid crisis because a lot yeah. of evil motherfuckers pushed opioids and had doctors push opioids for years and the Sackler family will never pay a price for it. So Maine is now struggling to meet the needs of their citizens who are addicted. And there's a shortage of, uh, of detox beds. And it turns yeah. out um, it's the Wabanaki nations are coming to the rescue to help not just the tribe members, but everyone who's suffering. Can you tell us a bit about what's happening right now in Maine? Yeah, that's true. You know, um, there's a story out there right now, and the title is, We Are Not Going to Leave You Behind. The Wabanaki Nation opens a culturally sensitive detox center, and it's open to all people. And I think for me, I mean, this is a story of compassion and of unity, and it's a story that resonates with Native core beliefs and traditions. So in Maine, like in all, you know, a, a lot of other places in the United States and in Canada as well, there's an opioid crisis and it's an epidemic. And it's, I mean, I've worked in this field and it is a beast that spares no community. And I know this for, you know, yeah. from my own um, experiences working in this in this field. And the state of Maine is battling with a severe shortage of detox beds, which is very common. And it leave uh, leaving many in desperate need of help. And so, you know, in this sort of dark um, uh, horizon, the Wabanaki nations and the Wabanaki make up Maine's four federally recognized tribes, and they're opening a new medication-assisted treatment center and detox facility. And it's they're they're it's a testament for me. It's a testament to a powerful philosophy that runs deep in our native roots, and basically that is helping everyone, regardless of who they are, this uh, center is open to everyone. And for me, you know, I know Simon will will speak to this as well, but it's a way of life for us. In most Native American cultures, we believe in the interconnectedness of all lives. And our ethos literally teaches us that when one of us suffers, we all suffer. 
And when we help others, we help ourselves. And this principle, it guides us to extend our hand, not just to our own people, but to all who are in need. And it really is about recognizing the shared humanity that binds us. And for this reason, you know, I'm so proud that that the nations, the Wabanaki nations in Maine are are doing this and, and saying, we will not leave you behind. This is for you as well. It's so beautiful. And and Simon, I do want to bring you in on this too, because this is what Christianity is supposed to do, right? We're, we're taught, am I my brother's keeper? Well, yes, God mm-hmm. damn it. According to the Bible, yeah. you are, but we forget about that. No room at the end. We're, we're in a society now where dark right-wing Christians are no room at the end and stay the fuck away from our manger while you're at it. I mean, mm-hmm. this is this is really walking the walk, and and this is, yeah. to me, a true spirituality that that in the face of suffering we are mm-hmm. all family, and this is from, yeah, arguably the most oppressed minority group in the history of this country. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. As, as indigenous people, we we do look out for each other. We have looked out for each other, even with like enemy tribes. You know, an emissary would come over, and we would feed him. He would need to sleep. And that's how, because we there was no way that we could have a conversation with somebody who's exhausted, somebody who needs to nap, somebody who needs some food. Mm-hmm. And so we would say, we would welcome over the, the enemy emissary, put him up in a, a teepee and say, we'll talk in the morning. Yeah. And yeah. so all of our logic, all of you know, taking care of each other is so um, is so a part of who we are. And again, just like Julia was saying in Lakota, Mitakwe Oyasin, it means that we are all related. Everything is related. Everything is connected. So that's why we say walk gently on the earth. You know, Mother Earth Mm -hmm. doesn't need us. We need her. And Mm -hmm. so the Wabanaki nations are taking it upon themselves. And they're not just, again, they're not saying we're just going to take care of our own. We're taking care of everybody, all of you. You have two legs like we have two legs. We all bleed red. Let's take care of each other. I love it. Now, I don't know if any of you have watched The Last of Us, but there's a scene in The Last of Us with Pedro Pascal and he with uh, Bella, or I'm not sure the the young girl's character's name, but Mm -hmm. they meet an indigenous couple. It's Graham Greene and the actress who plays uh, the the secretary from, oh, Northern Exposure, that, that series. Anyway, and she's feeding them and he's like, Graham Greene says, you gave them soup? And she's like, well, they were cold and they were needing something. And they literally came in there with guns ablazing, sort of, you know, asking for information. And I thought that is such a perfect example of indigenous ways of being in the world. Like, I don't care who you are. I will take care of you. We will feed you. We will house you, whatever you need. And that is the philosophy, you know. And so our indigenous, it's grounded in our indigenous values that, it's a living embodiment of our belief in inclusivity and communal I, I responsibility. We, to me, this is why yeah. this is why First Nations people are better at Christianity than a lot of white people I know. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just the values are already there. It doesn't have to be an act. We are at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. On the, on the other end of the moral spectrum, can I, can I ask you about a couple of more troubling stories this week? Because... Simon, you have been so on point at uh, getting people to understand the moral necessity of outrage at shitty racist mascots. Mm-hmm. And this Central Pennsylvania School Board has decided that they are going to go ahead and um, reinstate an old mascot logo yeah. that they had gotten rid of because it was too mm-hmm. racist. What What is going on in uh, in Central Pennsylvania? 
Well, apparently they're just they're, it's, it's mostly conservatives on the panel and they just want to go back. Remember, we said this last week, it's just they want their legacy and they're thinking this is woke culture who are asking for, you know, don't reinstate this. And now just to give people a little idea. Um, so it's a it's an image of, an, of a native person looking very stoic, very mean. And they're like, well, maybe we're honoring you. Do you ever consider that? We're like, first off, white people, you don't know how to honor us yet. Stop trying. Because when you try to honor us, you offend us. Additionally, this is a caricature. We are real human beings. And there's empirical proof that demonstrates how these mascots, Indian mascots, impact the mental health and stability of not just Native children, but of all children. And again, this isn't conjecture. You can look up of warrior chiefs and Indian princesses. That is a research paper by Dr. Stephanie Freiberg, where they reveal explicitly how badly these children feel. We just talked about suicide. We talked about, or or we're going to talk about suicide and suicide prevention in Indian country, but we're dealing with the mental health and stability of children. I don't give a shit if you think that this logo isn't offensive. You're not native. And additionally, if if you're not, if you don't feel that this is offensive, here's the research right here. And here's the mental health struggle with our children. And just because it's part of their legacy and they think this is woke culture, they're willing to put these indigenous children and children in the the dangerous space of mental health um, disparities, mental, just an illness that comes with mm-hmm. this negative imagery. Yeah. Yeah. Just a cartoon. You know, this the disturbing thing is there is one Native American family, only one that belongs to this school division. And they came out and they said, this is like so against sort of us would you reconsider really like there's literally one family that's native american in the school division and they're saying please don't do this like this is so detrimental to our people and they dismissed it and here's the bigger picture i think it isn't just about this symbol this logo it is a reflection of a deeper more systemic issue for native american communities This scenario is emblematic of a historical pattern where our voices are drowned out and our identities are appropriated without consent. And this is what, you know, it's like we don't matter. It doesn't matter if there's an indigenous family saying, this is really offensive. Can you like maybe just change it? And they're like, yeah, sorry, but no, we don't really care what you say or how this affects you. We're going to do it anyway. And this is systemic. It's a history. This is what happens to indigenous people. You're right. I have a lot of stories I still want to talk to you about, including um, the armies refusing to return the remains of these two indigenous boys after decades. Mm -hmm. We also have a lot of callers who want to Say hi and talk to you guys and ask a few questions. If you can wait, we're going to take a really quick break. Back in two minutes with Simon and Julie. I spent all week waiting for this segment. We'll be right back. And our number is 866-997-4748. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. 
No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Series XM Progress. I'm John Fugel saying so happy to welcome back. Simon Moya-Smith and Julie Franchella. For, are we really the only weekly First Nations segment on, on, on national radio? Because I'm just I'm bragging about that all the time, whether it's true or not. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Yeah, and I believe Wes Studi now uh, tunes in, so oh, I love Wes. Wes. Studi. He's oh, great. my God. I could never meet him. I would just, I would just, I would call him Magua. I would call him Magua all the time, and I would ruin <laughs> it. One of the most mm. charismatic film actors right? ever. Uh, we have a few I listeners who want us. He's great. We have a few listeners who want to say hello. Uh, Marie is calling from Atlanta. Marie, welcome. You're on SiriusXM Progress with Simon and Julie. Hello. Hi, Hi Marie. Thank you for my call, John. Hi, Julie. Hi, Simon. Hi. I'm Hi. so excited to talk to you. <laughs> um, so <laughs> well, I had this question. Please. <laughs> I had this question about two two weeks ago, um, and unfortunately, I couldn't get on. Um, so I have heard. I'm not going to represent that my knowledge is accurate or complete. But I have heard, I'm an attorney here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I've heard that the symbol of the owl has a meaning of um, a malevolent presence in some Native cultures. In some, it may symbolize wisdom. But I've always wondered, how do Native people coming into U.S. courts experience this environment where there tend to be symbols of owls in the architecture and in the decor of the building, in addition to the Lady Liberty figure. That's a great question. I've always been kind of curious about that. that. Yeah, that that is a good question. And Simon, you'll you'll be able to answer the Lakota, mm-hmm. um, but it's different for different nations. And I know for the Osage, if you watched Killers of the Flower Moon, you'll see Tantu Cardinal seeing the owl come in at yeah. different parts of her life and that's sort Gladstone of too. signifying when, when, Lily, when Lily, Lily Gladstone is near death the it flies into her room yes mm. so the the owl sort of comes in and like it's a bearer of like danger and you know sort of watch out um it's different so for some tribes it's a symbol of wisdom and teachings and so it's different for each nation and that's such a great question thank mm. you for it for um, asking that. Simon, you might want to take that over yeah. with it, the Lakota. Sure. Um, it depends on the time of the day. So we know that owls, um, they are going to be nocturnal. So that's just their time. So if you see an owl at night, that doesn't really mean anything. He's probably hunting. But if you see an owl during the day, then that means someone is going to yeah. die. It's an omen of death. Yeah. 
But yeah, in the is, courtroom, yeah. in the courtroom, I think for most of indigenous people, uh, next time you're in a Capitol building, next time you're in a courthouse, look at the paintings. And sometimes it's depicting like a noble savage or a dead Indian. So we're not too worried about, you know, something like an owl, but we see the iconography and some of this mm -hmm. artwork they call artwork. And it is of dead Indians or an Indian, walk, you know, escaping from white people. And so those images are the ones we usually have to deal with in courthouses and Capitol buildings. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I, in case you didn't know, I'm sure I'm not breaking news, but in case you didn't know, Mary Smith, the first Native American to head up the American Bar Association, um, membership of 400,000 attorneys nationwide. She was elected last year. Um, so proud of her. And I consider her a That's good right. friend. And right on. Share that. Brilliant. Uh, thank right you. on. Exactly. Thanks, Marie. That's my mother's name and both of my daughter's middle names. So... <laughs> there's a connection there so thank you for phoning in and listening that's amazing oh marie classes up this show on a regular basis thank you counselor it's right. a pleasure nice. to hear from you let me go to uh let me get one more caller this is great kuamel is calling us from california am i saying your name right kuamel welcome you're on sirius xm yes indeed it's kuamel so by number seven i'm happy here. to have you thank you yeah, about a long time listener, first time caller. Oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I know, as they as they say over on Time Like It, or on um, you know some of these other shows that you hear around here, um, and usually I call it uh, another station uh, you might be afraid, uh, uh, familiar with in Los Angeles, KBLA fifteen eighty. Shout out to Dominique the Premier, all those folks over there. Yes, indeed. So I wanted to. I, wanted, I, I was waiting for a few weeks because, um, as Colin Coward would say, a thing I've been on. For like a few years now, is the I so there's two things I want to ask. So this one I'm, I want to stay on for. So it's the idea that I feel black folks uh, that are considering, you know, like okay, like yeah, we got to get out of America because of you know racism, white supremacy, and all that. Maybe want to stay here on on the idea of showing solidarity with indigenous folks, with First Nations. Yeah. And 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 being here to and being here to fight the good fight, and not just not saying not saying that First Nations folks can't can't take care of themselves, but not leaving them without the numbers to combat this crazy white supremacy here. I wanted to get uh, both of your thoughts on that before I had another question. Yeah, no, I, I think it, you're you're not wrong. It's really important. When we were fighting um, for the water and for the people at Standing Rock, Black Lives Matter came to the camp, and then mm -hmm. when uh, the cops murdered. George Floyd, we went and we fought beside them in Minneapolis. And it, that solidarity is extremely important. And, you know, what's weird, though, is like one one question I get a lot. And I talked to Julie about this and like back in the 1960s in the civil rights movement, why didn't the African-American community and the Native American community align? Well, we did. We did align. The only difference was we have treaties with the United States government. The African-American community doesn't have treaties with the U.S. government. So we were basically mm -hmm. showing white people this piece of paper that they wrote and they put in our faces and said, here, we're not going to fuck with you guys anymore. This is your land. And then we knew that was bullshit. They took more land because of oil and mm -hmm. gas. But the 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 num you're right you're not going to find a million man march with indigenous people we're the smallest racial minority yeah. in our yeah. own ancestral land so it's it's just a numeric issue for us to be even acknowledged as a movement aside, unless we do what we did at Standing Rock and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with these cops, go toe-to-toe -to -toe mm. with the oil and gas industry, mm -hmm. or back in the 70s when um, the American Indian movement, you know, 
help literally some of them came back from vietnam they said fuck it grab let's get some guns and that's usually yeah. the only time we ever get that level of attention but yes yeah more and more people are learning about the oppression of indigenous people and yeah. there's many many similarities in the oppression of african americans and indigenous people whether it be um overt racism or covert racism or covert yeah that's right one of the things you know we were talking about i was talking uh, to Simon about, you know, um, back before they started bringing slaves over from Africa, they started to enslave indigenous people here on this That's continent. Right. And there were so many deaths because of a disease. And then we knew this land like the back of our hand that we could escape. So native native slaves would would run away and escape and be able to survive out in the wilderness. And so that was the plan A. And so they went with a plan B, which was, well, let's go then over to Africa and start taking slaves from Africa because there's a whole ocean where they can't just run away. And so, and Simon and I have talked about this before, but, you know, um, African-American slaves would run away and go and, and uh, indigenous tribes would invite them and sort of hide them and like invite them into That's our right. nations. And there was a lot of that going on. So this shared sort of history of, um, you know, colonization and, and displacement and systemic discrimination in the United States, I think this shared history has often led to common ground in struggles uh, for rights and sovereignty. And so there's, I think there's a, a kinship there that um, I can't separate I, them. I, I can't separate right? the two yeah. issues. Like for, like for me, it's just yeah. and I, speaking as the white guy in the conversation. I mean, for me, it's just <laughs> I, I can't have a conversation about reparations for slavery that doesn't include reparations for the descendants mm -hmm. of First Nations people. These are the right. two original sins of the United States. Yeah. Mm. These are the two open bleeding wounds America has left to fester. And we are never going to heal and move forward as a country. Our country is living under a hex, as far as I'm concerned, until yeah. the, the descendants of the colonizers and brutalizers take history with both hands and make it right for the bloodlines right. of those who were oppressed. And uh, I, I don't mean to compare, you know, one side had their land stolen, the other side was stolen from their land. But I, I, yeah. I can't separate both atrocities when I talk about justice and when I talk about history. But you're yeah, right. John, like there's that shared, you know, sort of the history where, you know, I agree with you. 100%. Yeah, go ahead, Kua. Yeah, 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 John. You, you kind of open up a can with that one. Um, I, I don't know if some of those, uh, like some of the, like the real hardcore reparations wonks are listening. I know because they would. Over, I know. Over, over, over on, over on uh, the station I just mentioned, uh, they have like a the quote unquote Freeman Friday, where oh boy, like uh, like the chat just jumps off with like all the like ah, you know, like really, you know, like cut the check type people. I know. Um, I know. So, I kind of, I, I kind of I, I maybe should say that for, for another day because I, I hope to be a, a. No, and listen, I think reparations should take the form of monetary payments, but a lot more. I mean, you get a house, you get healthcare, yeah. you get education. Like to Indeed. me, reparations is really, you know, I mean, we uh, we have to pay reparations for at least four hundred years before we stop. I mean, I'm I'm in favor of just balancing everything out, and and I get it. I don't want to compare necessarily, you know, being ethnically cleansed from your land to being stolen and enslaved. Obviously, there there are a lot of differences, but to me, it's a it's a natural alliance because the same white yeah. men dictated the mm -hmm. abuse yeah. to both peoples. Now, yeah. I, I'm trying to be I'm trying to be mindful of. And, and I see I see Julie got something. I want, so I want to throw one more thing out there. I, I have no idea when the break is coming. Uh, so real quick, I'll, I'll throw this one out and take the comments off the air. 
Um, I, I wonder, Simon and Julie, if you are uh, like, I guess, kind of aware of of some certain certain black circles, certain black groups that have begun to uh, you know speak on themselves as though, like, you know, well, we're we're the Nat- we're the Native Americans as well, yeah. and uh, or, or or some some maybe maybe even crank down up to say that they are separately. I've even heard I've even heard some groups not black uh, that would say that. You know, like that, that 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 it's like a separate, like they came up as like a separate group away from all other uh, racial or ethnic or nationality groups in the world. Um, but yeah, I, w- I wanted to kind of get your your thoughts on kind of hearing if you've heard some of this some of this banter about uh, uh, some some black folks seeing themselves as Native, as the Native Americans and not brought over from 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 the motherland. Mm. Uh, yeah, I just want, want to get your thoughts on that off the air. But thank you for thank you all for your time, and thank you, John. Thank you for the John. call. Please call anytime. Well, thank you. I I would that? recommend watching. Uh, there's a, a film out there, a documentary right now called Rumble, and it talks about New Orleans and it talks about the history of and the connection between the Native Americans and the 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 black you know African Americans brought over into slavery and there are communities particularly in this uh, southeastern united states where there has been a long history of intermarriage between african slaves and native americans and i think this has led to the formation of a distinct group of mixed african and native american ancestry and i know so many people uh, friends of mine who are that mixed sort of um ancestry of 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 yeah. um uh, African American and Native American, and most Native Americans I meet today, like I, I was talking to a friend of mine, Ruth, and she was saying like her grandmother is a Native American, and she's you know uh, her her descendants came from you know slave owners, and so it's like such a fascinating um, history. A lot and she of she identifies um, as black. She identifies is she is she is she black? Both. Yeah, no, she's okay, black. Right on. Yeah, right on. but she's she that, that's very common. Every every time I meet any, you know, a black person I meet, they usually say I have like, look at Jimi Hendrix. His grandmother was Cherokee. Right. Yes, absolutely. You know, and then there's so many people that like and that was very common. So there's a very shared history there. It's fascinating. I'm just so fascinated by yeah. that. Simon, do you have any thoughts on that? They make beautiful babies. I'll say that. They make beautiful babies. But yeah, she's, I mean, Julie's right. She mentioned something that we, so indigenous people, we would be in our territory. And then of course, say an African family uh, ran away from a plantation and they would end up with us in our camp. And then some white son of a bitch would come over and you say, you have our property. And then of course, we're like, what property? Did somebody steal a gun? Did somebody steal a hoe? What's going on here? Like they'd be pointing at the African-American family and they were like, oh, you want them? Come and get them. And then so we would end up fighting all these white people. And then the the African family would would become part of the nation and there would be intermarriage. And so there, in, in my opinion, based on a lot of not just the anecdotes, but uh, the stories, I think African-Americans yeah. have more of a right to say I'm part native instead of all these oh, white yeah. people that come around oh, and yeah. just say I'm a quarter Cherokee. And um, <laughs> my great great grandma was a Cherokee princess. No, African-Americans have more <laughs> of that right to have that claim because there's some yeah. solid history behind that claim. Amen. I, I got to ask truth. you about... I got to ask you about residential schools. We've talked a lot about, you know, how Canada has begun their reckoning on this long, ugly, murderous history, and America has not even begun to acknowledge it's real here. It seems like the Winnebago tribe may be knocking on history's door. Um, Can you tell me a bit about 
this story of these two indigenous boys from the 1890s who yeah. died in military custody and our armed forces still doesn't want to give their remains back. <laughs> this is the most macabre yeah. story I've heard in months. Yeah, I mean, the case involves the remains of indigenous boys from the, the Winnebago tribe. And these remains are currently held by the U.S. Army. And so the Winnebago tribe has filed a lawsuit against the Army. And the basis of this legal action is a viola is a violation of the federal law. And we talked about this before, that mandates the return of native human, uh, human remains to their respective tribes. So in a bold defiance of federal law, the U.S. Army has refused to return the remains. And yeah. I think, you know, this story matters because it's a raw, unfiltered snapshot of the ongoing struggle of indigenous communities that uh, and what they're facing in America. And, you know, this happens all the time. And I think, yeah. you know, Simon and I are attempting... And I appreciate, you know, being able to talk on this program, but we're attempting to shine a spotlight on a system, and it is a system that promised to, promises to uphold the rights of Native Americans, but falls short when it's really time to act. And that's sort of the point. And so for me, you know, we want the listeners to understand that this isn't an isolated incident. It's a symptom of a larger, more insidious problem. The refusal to return the remains of these Winnebago boys is a glaring example of how the voices of Indigenous people are often muted, their yep. rights trampled, and their traditions sidelined. And this kind of links back to the whole idea of reinstating the logo. Native Americans are saying, why are you doing this? And it's just like, you don't really matter. We're going to do it anyway. And this, that's to it. me, that's it. it's that's what it says. It's like, it's, it's saying, you don't count. How many times do we say that we feel invisible? We're saying like, this is not okay. Return our remains. No, actually, the U.S. Army is saying no. And I, I mean, yeah. Simon, you can you can talk about that. But I mean, what are they doing really with the remains? This is 130 years ago. These two boys were stolen from their families, put into this boarding school prison that the Bureau of Indian Affairs ran on army property. Mm -hmm. They died. We don't know how they died. What is the mm -hmm. what is our military need with their bones? They, nothing. They just flatly said that they weren't going to do it. They weren't going to abide or they weren't going to follow this federal law. The Native American Graves Protection and Re Repatriation Act is called NAGPRA. The reason mm -hmm. NAGPRA was it was established in 1990 was because of all the massacres and murders. When they would come out and they'd say like the Wounded Knee Massacre, the Bear River Massacre, any one of the massacres, and even after just a battle, they would take everything they could, not just yep. the, the beads and not just the blankets that now you see on antiques fucking road show that bothers yep. me every time that they're there yep. and they're like oh this is a native american blanket from 1860 yeah, you, you know how you fucking guys got it man amen so anyway so what the reason they in they this law exists is to return our families bodies their bones That's a law everything and then now you have the army just going meh and then you have like uc mm -hmm. berkeley you have museums and universities that continue to just put our family's bones and remains and funerary items on fucking shelves in basements and they're dragging yeah. their feet 
to give back yeah. our family and just reverse it. Imagine if natives were just like, oh, we have the bones of your grandparents, but fuck it, we're going to hang on to them. Why are you going to hang on to them? Who gives a shit? Well, I'm just not going to oh, give them back. That's it. And that's what that's the it. army is saying to indigenous people who's like, yeah. okay, these two kids, how we don't, we don't know how they died are buried right outside the Carlisle Indian boarding school, which was extremely brutal to indigenous children, not just physically and mentally, but spiritually. These kids lost a lot of their spirit there. And the elders are saying, you need to return these children home because ever since, eight, what is it, 1895 and 1899, they've yes. died. Yeah. They yes. have not been able to rest. They're there. They're not home. And so all we're asking is to have the, our family members brought back to us so they can finally rest in the next place. The law mm -hmm. requires to return yeah. human remains within 90 days of an official request. Mm -hmm. That's that's the NAGPRA law you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I am yep. thrilled the Winnebago Nation is suing the military because I hope that this story becomes really famous. It's insane. Yeah. It's insane. But the fact that they, that they have to sue them, the fact that they have to sue them is like, I don't understand. Like, but this this is like what we're saying. Indigenous people, our voices, we're saying, please don't reinstate that that um logo. It's it's racist. It hurts us. And they're like, sorry, we don't we whatever. And we they do it shit. anyway. That's it. They don't and that's that's how we feel. Guys, we have a lot of stories, but a lot of listeners still want to say hello. Let's go to Lance, who is calling from New Orleans. Lance, welcome. You're on SiriusXM with Julian Simon. What's up, there? Uh, how you doing? Um, Hi. Julie, I got the answer to your question about the Native American tribe down here in New Orleans. That's the Mardi Gras Indians, right? The Mardi Gras Indians? That's who you're talking oh, about. Oh, yeah. Or New Orleans, okay. yes. Yeah. Now, if you get down here from Mardi Gras, go see that. If you, if you watch the TV show from May... Tremay. One of the characters was vacant. His suit to wear on Mardi Gras Day. I remember that. Yeah. I got a, I got a serious question. Uh, I'm a pilot. John knows that. Can, do me a favor. Airport. Can you can you can you do me a favor, Lance? With much love, can you yeah. speak into your phone as loudly and clearly as you can? Because it sounds like there's a little muffle there. It's, it's a little hard to, to to hear you distinctly. Go ahead. How about oh, just, okay? Uh, nice. Thank you. Much better. Okay. Okay. Um. When I'm flying in, I'm coming to land. Sometimes I have hawks, eagles, buzzards all flying alongside of me. Well, one day I had a I had a, a owl flying next to me. Is that a bad omen during the day? Well, Not necessarily, honey. Okay. No. Sometimes <laughs> for us, sometimes owls are 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 bearers of just transition times too. So, did you say you had an eagle? He had an eagle. Yeah, I had a bald eagle flying alongside of me. On my final really? on base, on, on the final to land at the naval base where I fly over with the Air Force. And um, I want to ask, can we, since the federal government has no law on your reservations, could we put a um, abortion clinic on there for everybody to use? They have no say I on mean, that. Interesting. Well, go ahead. Yeah, let, we haven't talked about this go subject, ahead, have go we? Go ahead, Simon. That, that was a well, good idea, though, but Simon, go right. ahead. Right. It, it, all, it all depends. I mean, you could establish a um, even a Planned Parenthood on a, on a reservation. It just all depends on the, uh, the, the tribe. The tribe makes that decision. Like, so you have the elders, you have the council. If they say yes, then they're going to do it. But on, on most, unfortunately, a lot of the reservations are so separated and far away from people that they don't even know. Some, some don't even know that there's a reservation near them. For example, mm -hmm. right up against the the Hamptons is a reservation. 
the Shinnecock Reservation literally mm. is just down the That's street. Right. That's and right. so people don't even know that we're there and we exist. So even if there was one, even we could do that, we can maybe make an announcement. And then, of course, people can come onto the reservation. There's no like some there's no gate. Mm-hmm. We just hope that when you do come to the reservation, you you do it in a good way. You don't come and proselytize. You know what I mean? So, yes, of course, yeah. indigenous people as separate yeah. sovereign nations can erect something like a Planned Parenthood. But that would take a relationship between like Planned Parenthood and indigenous people we do yeah. have indian health services clinics but the majority of those have zero money in their coffers great question lance but i like that idea i like that way of thinking because just like in maine with the opioid uh, crisis they're developing and they're creating these um, detox facilities and they're opening it to all people and so that i mean i that's always a way i think for me a way a way to kind of circumvent some of these uh, issues. So that's a great right question. On. Yeah. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for the call, Lance. Really appreciate it. Thank you for your uh, for your service. Let me go for one more caller really quick, and then I want to get some, uh, some final thoughts out of you guys. But Sal is calling from New Mexico. Sal, thank you for waiting on hold so long. You're on thank with Simon you. and Julie. Hey. Hi, Sal. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the call. Simon and Julie, it is a thrill for me to talk to both of you. Um, I am a, I am a high school teacher here in New Mexico and I teach a class that, uh, that teaches U.S. history and pop culture through film. The second film that I show in the year is Smoke Signals. And I also am intending to take a look at showing Killers of the Flower Moon next year. I would be honored, extremely honored, if one or both of you would consider a video chat next school year with my students to discuss either one or potentially both of those movies. Absolutely. I'd be honored. Wow. Nice. So he he's he's shown he's shown smoke signals to his students. He's a he's oh, a teacher yeah. in high school yeah. and he, he teaches about history and pop culture and he's trying to figure out what film to show next year. So you're thinking about Flower Moon or okay. what else? What else are you thinking of? I am. Listen. I'm, I'm thinking of Flower Killers of the Flower Moon and I'm on again, I plan to show smoke signals again. Uh, next year. But right on. Uh, the, the, the unfortunate I, I would love to suggest a film American. called no, go ahead, Julie. Well, he wants to know if you guys can speak to his class, but go ahead, Julie. Oh, sure. I would love to suggest a film called Indian Horse. And that film is now being um, used in the curriculum in Ontario high schools. And it really is, uh, it's interesting because it also has hockey in it. So so kids will like be interested, but it really is the story of um, what happened. It's 50s and 60s uh, in Canada same story of the United States, but I would highly recommend Indian Horse. And Clint Clint Eastwood produced it. Clint Eastwood produced it, yes. 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 No, man, count me in. I'm in New Mexico anyway. Okay, well, let me ask you guys here. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you guys and uh, reach out to you to uh, harass, stalk, or book you? Julie, how how do people uh, go about bothering you? You can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at Julie Franchella, and I have a website, juliefranchella.com. And Simon? Yeah, on Twitter, or X, whatever it's called, uh, at Simon Moya Smith, and then on Instagram at Simon Said, take a pic. Right on. Book these people to speak to your groups, folks, and thank me later. And thank you, Sal, <laughs> for the call. Hey, and our final minute. Thanks, Sal. 
Do we have time for a quick little round of uh, Did You Know? Let's do it. Julie, yes, we you want do. to go first? Go ahead. You're up. Did you know that the Inuit people, the native to the native to the Arctic regions, ingeniously invented the very first form of sunglasses? You're welcome. I did not know that, Simon. Yeah, you see, you <laughs> made out of whalebone. Yeah, whale bone. made out of whalebone, and they it was because they had sun blindness from the snow, so they created whalebone sunglasses. And you are welcome. All those, you know, Ray Bans and all that. There you go. <laughs> nice. Well, my Bye, girlfriend, Mitch. yeah, my girlfriend is Yupik and Anupak. She grew up in a small little village way in the north part of Alaska, and she's a badass. She's a hunter, a pilot. She could do any of those things. So, yeah, the yep. Yupik and Anupaks are badass people. Uh, let's see. I was, I don't know. I, with this, did you know? I didn't know if I wanted to be kind of bummed. I don't want to bum We got like 30 out. seconds, so make it and drop it. Go for it. Okay. The University of Denver had a book on display for about 80 years about Christian history in the United States, and it was bound in the filleted skin of an indigenous person. <gasps> oh. oh, my God. That's terrible. Oh, my uh, God. And on yeah. that note, thank you once again, <laughs> Simon down, and Simon. Julie. No, <laughs> now, now I'm going to stay angry all week till our next segment. Guys, I love this. I look forward to it all week. Thank you for classing up our show. Everyone follow Simon and Julie and book them for your events, too. This is Progress. Progress.